Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to London, where top diplomats will look for ways to support Ukraine against the invasion by Russia. It's Tuesday, June 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, women in Iran are finding new ways to protest against rules forcing them to wear the hijab. Also this hour, concerns over the algorithms used in many countries to screen applicants for social safety net programs. These algorithms should be gotten rid of altogether. Targeting algorithms do not work in this context. And we go to Charlestown, where some residents are trying to get a historic designation for the Bunker Hill battlefield. The monument's on the register but it's a marker of a battlefield that is not. In sports, Red Sox win, mostly cloudy, near 70 today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's a search and rescue operation underway in the North Atlantic Ocean for a missing submersible vehicle. Dan Karpinchuk reports it failed to check in Sunday after it began an excursion to see the wreck of the Titanic. The U.S. Coast Guard says surface crews lost contact with the submersible less than two hours after it descended into a remote area of the ocean after having left St. John's, Newfoundland on Sunday morning. U.S. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger says Sunday afternoon they were notified that the submersible was overdue. There were five people on board. He says U.S. and Canadian aircraft are searching the area with radar and sonar buoys, and vessels from both countries have been dispatched. The infamous wreck is located about 360 miles southeast of Newfoundland. The Titan can provide oxygen and life support for up to 96 hours. Experts say the biggest challenge will be the submersible's depth. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. Today's the final day of voting in Virginia's primary election. Republicans took control of the lower state house two years ago, and Republican Glenn Youngkin became Virginia governor. From member station WAMU, Margaret Bartell says the primary results could affect Youngkin, who has had some key wins in the Virginia legislature. One of the biggest is a big tax cut that he got through in the budget deal last year. Um, But because Democrats have control of the state Senate, they've been able to block a lot of the stuff on Youngkin's agenda. Think things like a 15-week abortion ban and school choice legislation. And so for someone who's kind of flirting with presidential ambitions like Youngkin is, not getting those cultural conservative wins is a bit of a problem. Margaret Bartell reporting. New research suggests police drug busts may actually increase the number of overdoses experienced by people with addiction. NPR's Brian Mann reports the study comes as policymakers debate how to respond to surging overdose deaths. The peer-reviewed study focused on streets in Indianapolis, Indiana. After police conducted raids on dealers selling methamphetamines and fentanyl, Overdoses rose sharply. Dr. Jennifer Carroll is one of the lead authors. Overdoses in the community, both fatal and non-fatal, were increasing after local law enforcement seized drugs. With opioids, we saw overdoses double. Carroll says one theory is that after police raids, people with addiction wind up buying drugs from dealers they don't know who are selling fentanyl with different potency. Researchers say after 110,000 drug deaths last year, more study is needed to determine if raids wind up doing more harm than good. Brian Mann, NPR News. More than a quarter million people are still without power in the central and southern U.S. due to powerful storms. More than 150,000 customers are in the dark in Oklahoma. Mississippi has had tornadoes over the past two days. A tornado on Sunday left one person dead. This 
is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. More now on the search for a 21-foot submarine missing in the Atlantic. The Coast Guard in Boston is heading the search for the craft. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mogger says commercial vessels are helping in the search and sonar buoys have been deployed. Sonar capabilities uh, within the sonar buoys and within uh, the hull of the commercial vessel that uh, is out there operating on site, those aren't Coast Guard sonars, um, they are capable of listening uh, to a depth of uh, 13,000 feet, as I understand Five people are on board the submarine. It has 96 hours of oxygen and other emergency capabilities. The incoming president of Mount Holyoke College says she's extremely concerned about the possible impact of a pending Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. As Alden Bourne reports, it's a case that has ties to Harvard. For decades, colleges and universities have been able to use race not as a determining factor in who gets admitted, but as one of many factors that are considered. Lawsuits brought against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina could change that by taking race out of the equation. Danielle Holly is the president-elect of Mount Holyoke. She expects the court to rule against affirmative action. She says the college is exploring other ways to maintain diversity on campus, including by broadening recruitment efforts in specific parts of the country. That would be, you know, targeting more probably urban areas in the Midwest, also in the South, just seeking qualified applicants to apply. A decision by the court could come as soon as this week. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Cambridge is the best place in the U.S. for families to live. That's according to new rankings from Fortune magazine. Cambridge earned the top spot for its proximity to world-renowned educational institutions. It also got high marks for its access to restaurants, museums, and nightlife. Portsmouth, New Hampshire earned the number two spot. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. The Red Sox have now won five in a row. They beat the Twins 9-3 to last night in Minneapolis. The Sox and Twins will play again tonight. Mostly cloudy today. It'll be near 70. Mostly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the 70s. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. It's a busy week for America's top diplomat. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with China's top leader Xi Jinping yesterday in China. You heard him on this program talking about his trip to Beijing. It was the first such visit in more than five years. Now Blinken is turning to Ukraine. He's in London today for a conference focusing on Ukraine's post-war recovery. Those talks start tomorrow. NPR's Lauren Frere joins us now from our London Bureau. Lauren, Secretary of State Blinken told NPR yesterday that he applauds any role China can play in a peace deal for Ukraine. So how do the UK and other countries will be at this conference see it? Some of them are wary, actually. I mean, China, as you know, has not condemned Russia. Uh, Xi Jinping has maintained ties with Vladimir Putin. On the other hand, this war is grinding on, and China, because of its ties to Russia, could be sort of uniquely placed to shake loose some kind of compromise from Putin, if Putin has any interest in ending this war at all through diplomacy, which doesn't look likely at this point. I called up a China expert. His name is Rana Mitter, a historian at Oxford, and he says, you know, China's actually been playing that role in other conflicts around the world. China has gone, particularly to countries which are no longer very friendly towards the United States, Iran would be a good example, and used its economic links and its long history of diplomatic connection with them to try and essentially broker agreements that lead to regional peace. Iran, Saudi Arabia is the best example of that in recent years. And he says, of course, if there is a peace in Ukraine, there could be something in that for China, too. Okay, so what might that look like? A hand basically in rebuilding and the reconstruction of Ukraine. China is a construction machine. It has built infrastructure projects around the world. It relies on those projects to create jobs for Chinese workers and keep the Chinese economy afloat. Chinese workers have already built parts of the Kyiv metro, and they want to do more projects like that. I talked to another analyst. His name is Mujtaba Rahman of the Eurasia Group. It's a risk analysis firm. And he says that a Chinese role in Ukraine Ukraine actually makes the European Union pretty nervous. The Chinese can build political support, allegiance, connections through undertaking a massive large-scale capital reconstruction program. And I think so there is a, a lot of concern in Europe about competition with the Chinese for hearts and minds in Ukraine once the war has stopped. He says basically the European Union sees Ukraine as its turf, and it doesn't want China to have a foothold there. Hmm, All right. So then this conference in London this week is about planning for what happens if and when the war ends? Yeah, basically having a plan for that moment. And to that end, the European Commission is announcing today a big package for Ukraine's medium-term recovery through 2027. The UK, which is second only to the US in terms of military aid to Ukraine, has announced a tightening of sanctions on Russia. It wants to keep Russian assets frozen, even if and when the war ends, until Moscow agrees to pay compensation to Ukraine. So Blinken and other diplomats are looking at the rebuilding of Ukraine and legal repercussions for Russia. NPR's Lauren Frere in London. Thanks for the info, Lauren. You're welcome. The U.S. and other allies ship lots of big-ticket weapons to Ukraine. 40-ton tanks, huge artillery guns, massive anti-aircraft systems. But Ukrainians are also using weapons they can buy on the Internet and hold in one hand. NPR's Greg Myrie has this report. 
I'm south of the capital, Kiev, and this big open farm field, the sunflowers are just beginning to sprout. And I'm here because Ukraine wanted to show how it's upgrading what's already one of its most powerful weapons in this war, drones. Drones are buzzing all around. It's like someone poked a hornet's nest. And that's exactly what Ukraine's army of drones is all about. A combined effort of the military, the government, and private groups, the army of drones is led by the country's 32-year-old deputy prime minister, Mihailo Fedorov. And in order to win in this fast-paced technological war, the government needs to think and act as a technological company, to be agile, to make fast decisions, and to move faster. The Russians have a much larger and more powerful air force. But so far, the Ukrainians have mostly offset this in two key ways. First, Ukraine's air defenses shot down so many Russian fighter jets initially that Russia rarely sends them into Ukrainian airspace anymore. And second, the Ukrainians have employed drones creatively for both reconnaissance and attacks. With Ukrainian government support, private groups say they've trained 10,000 drone pilots in the past year and now plan to train 10,000 more. Drones are critically important for us. They're critical in our combat advantage, and this is why we're scaling this. Anton Frolov heads one of these private drone training programs called Raven, which creates military pilots with a five-day course. You have to fly in, a, in difficult conditions. You can learn to fly in one day, but you have to know how frequencies work, how the stuff works, how the enemy uh, fighting against you. The Ukrainians have received cutting-edge military drones from the U.S. and Turkey. But mostly, they rely on popular Chinese models built for civilians. They can be bought straight off the Internet for $2,000 or less. The Ukrainians primarily use the drones for reconnaissance, one of the reasons they often seem a step or two ahead of the Russians on the battlefield. But Ukrainians also rig the drones with a claw to carry a small explosive, like a grenade. It can be dropped with great precision into a Russian trench or even into the open top hatch of a tank. The Russians are fighting back with electronic jamming that cuts the signal between the Ukrainian drone operator and his drone. It's become a huge problem. Again, Anton Frolov. At the very beginning of this war, the flight distance of the civilian drone was from 5 to 7 kilometers. Right now, we have only two because of jamming system, because of this system that's getting tougher and tougher against us. Two kilometers is just a little over a mile. And he says now you can only keep a drone aloft for a couple minutes before the Russians find it and knock it out. Ukraine, in turn, says it's working on software that can overcome Russian electronic jamming. Also, Ukraine is ramping up drone production at home, which is still limited. Maxim Musica makes an attack drone called the Punisher. The demand from our military is much bigger than manufacturing capacity in Ukraine. So right now, for example, till the end of the year, we will be completely full with orders. As Ukraine scrambles to get as many drones as it can, one result is that the military now has a hodgepodge of systems. They're buying right now dozens of different types of drones from different manufacturers. It's a nightmare from the point of view of logistics, of training, of usage. But it's working. Most importantly, he says, drones are saving the lives of Ukrainian soldiers doing the dangerous reconnaissance work troops had to do in the past. Greg Myrie, NPR News, south of Kyiv.
Many young figure skaters dream of going to the Olympics. The many hours of training they need can be hard to get if the only rink they can use is small and crowded. Cassidy Arena from member station KBIA in Missouri reports. The Washington Park Ice Arena in Jefferson City is small, and this day, busy with skaters and their coaches. That's where you can often find 16-year-old Miley Hawkins. I've been skating since I was three years old. And 15-year-old Jesse Johnson is there too. I think I started skating like a little bit before kindergarten, but then got serious with it around like maybe first or second grade. Hawkins and Johnson are best friends. And what brings them together is their devotion to landing the perfect double axle. Someday, Miley and I are going to be doing side-by-side double axles out there on the ice. Let's make that triple sows. I hate (laughs) double axles. Hawkins and Johnson are competitive figure skaters, and they have to make the best of the time they have at the ice rink. It's the only one in the region. Another one is about two hours away near St. Louis. You definitely have to make your schedule fit the rink's schedule. Johnson says because the rink is only available to advanced skaters about an hour a day, she and Hawkins make all sorts of adjustments to get there in time for practice. And if you miss out on that freestyle hour... You're either waking up at like 5 in the morning to come skate every day, which I don't think is very fun, or you're just going to the public sessions that are super crowded and hard to skate at. Hawkins has trained out of state with the national program that prepares skaters for the USA skating team. And the skaters there weren't familiar with her local facility. And they're like, oh my gosh, are you from a new rink? And I was like, nope, we've been here 50 years. We just have never sent someone this far. Brent Eccles coaches Hawkins and Johnson. He knows many highly competitive skaters come from urban areas where there is more access to ice time. Skating clubs at big rinks also provide testing opportunities. We're a small town, so it's hard for people to, for children and students to understand the depth of figure skating and how aggressive it has to be for you to move up the levels. Hawkins knows about those levels, so she joined a larger club in Kansas City to get better access to testing. She says it was still tough to persevere and compete against skaters who had better facilities all along. And it's how you take the hits you have. If you can work through having a rough rink where your rink floods all the time and still be the same skater as someone who had the easiest path possible, it shows how much tougher you are. Even so, Hawkins says she's gotten a little burnt out from skating at such high levels. But Johnson says she still has her eye on the horizon for future national titles and will continue to train at the small rink in Missouri. Knowing that we probably do have more struggles that we have to come across with our rink than other people, it makes me feel more fulfilled with what I've accomplished. Johnson and Hawkins say while it's not easy to train in a region not built for competitive skating, they're each other's support. And with that, they laughingly go off to try that double axle one more time. Are you okay? No, I'm not okay. For NPR News, I'm Cassidy Arena in Jefferson City, Missouri. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the international group Human Rights Watch is raising an alarm about algorithms that countries like Jordan use to decide who qualifies for social safety net programs. It's 719. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage. Employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. The Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest Protestant denomination, overwhelmingly voted to oust women from church leadership. It feels like being kicked out of the family, perhaps even like a divorce, as one of my friends said. What's driving this crackdown, and what impact could it have on the church's already declining population? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today's episode of our podcast, The Common, is out. Host Daryl C. Murphy talks to our arts team about their summer arts guide. It'll help you make plans for everything from outdoor concerts to indoor museum exhibits. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. A high near 70 today under overcast skies. Still cloudy tonight, and it falls to a low around 56. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy skies, gradually clear for a sunny day near 70 degrees. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson, starring Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, and Tom Hanks, now playing in New York and Los Angeles in theaters everywhere this Friday. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Ten years ago, writer Paul Salopek started a journey. I'm walking through the world in the footsteps of the first anatomically modern Homo sapiens who dispersed out of Africa back in the Stone Age. Salopek's Out of Eden walk began in Ethiopia, and he's covered about 15,000 miles so far. He's recording his observations for National Geographic. As you might imagine, his travels are sometimes disrupted by weather, war, and other conflicts. The pandemic delayed his entry into China. We've been checking in with Salopek regularly since he began his odyssey. He recently traversed a part of southwestern China that seems frozen in time, untouched by modernization, a region of the country where life is slow. Her co-host Steve Inskeep caught up with Salopek after he reached the capital city of Beijing. How did you walk over the mountains into China? Yeah, that's an interesting tale. It required uh, four months of basically living in a tent, walked, well, hit the mountains in Kyrgyzstan. And then I took a right turn and headed down into Tajikistan, into the Pamir Range, and then crossed into northern Afghanistan and walked through the Hindu Kush into northern Pakistan, hmm. uh, which is known as Gilgit Baltistan, right. and uh, walk down the Karakoram into the uh, the river flatlands of India from there. 
And you've now crossed into what was until very recently the world's most populous nation. Was it any trouble crossing the border into China? It was the first time um, that I've had to actually break the walk because a border was closed and, and jump on a plane and then enter that country by aircraft. And that was due to COVID. I was in Myanmar when the COVID uh, pandemic erupted. And I, I sat in Myanmar for months waiting for Asian borders to open and they didn't open and the clock was ticking. And so when my Chinese visa came through and I only had a small window in which to use it, I had no other choice. So I, I flew from Myanmar to, to Shanghai and then backtracked on a domestic flight back to the Myanmar-China border where my, my journey resumed. So then what was it like walking through southern China? I had never been in China before and entering Yunnan was an extraordinary surprise for me. I'm not a Sinologist. I'm not a China expert. Of course, I'd done some reading, but I've also absorbed a lot of kind of the, the two-dimensional uh, media coverage of the country, which makes it seem like a giant, you know, factory floor, uh, the, you know, the workshop of the world, mostly economics. And Yunnan was extraordinary because it's at this crossroads of tectonics, you know, the Indian plate smashing against the Asian plate. So you have big, big mountains, lots of different communities, different uh, ethnic groups. And it's one of the most biodiverse corners of the world. In addition to the image of a factory floor, we have an image of China as very polluted. It sounds like you were in a very beautiful area. This was one corner of China where that had yet to be seen. And it, uh, big national parks, kind of rural areas that uh, were basically living kind of an artisanal economy still, which is what the latest article is about. What do you mean by an artisanal economy? You've probably in your travels been to Parts of the world where for complicated reasons, economics or topography, people still plow the earth by hand or using animals. And it has a different look, a different shape than mechanized industrial agriculture. Ditto for built communities, whether they're villages or megacities. And so what I was coming to realize is not just that in the Anthropocene, we've drastically changed the planet to meet our appetites, but we have slowly, almost without being aware of it, are losing touch with the human hand itself, what the human hand can make. And this realization paradoxically gelled when I stepped over the, the Myanmar border into China, possibly because I had these conceptions that I'd be walking into the most industrialized country in the world. And I didn't. Instead, because it's the Eastern Himalayas, because the topography is rugged, there were um, villages that were not only the houses all handmade, but the roads to reach them were conformed to the human foot. People were still moving between them on foot or on bicycles or on, on occasions by pack horses. And even the tools to make this environment, I noticed, were handmade. In the human-built environment that you were walking through, were people conscious of that trade-off between money and human scale? And if so, what did they have to say about it? You know, I think that it's a generational thing uh, that I found in southwestern China. And, and I think, by and large, ordinary people, most of them would happily trade that for moving into a machine-built environment, right? Moving into a, a town where you have electricity that's reliable, where you have running water at the switch of a, you know, of a, of a faucet switch, where things are conveniently placed nearby, hospitals, shopping areas. So the generation that has grown up in this, and I would argue that that's 300,000 years of generations, don't know what they're sitting in. And it's human nature, right? And I can't blame them. And I would probably do the same from join the 200 million people who've migrated into cities in China in the last couple of generations. Mm -hmm. 
But I think there's a younger generation of Chinese, and I've met them, I've met them in Yunnan, who are coming from big mega centers, whether it's Beijing or Shanghai or wherever, who feel alienated by the modern built environment, working from 12 hours a day, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, and have kind of become unanchored from meaning. And they're trickling back. It's not a, a huge, you know, rush back to the land, but there's a trickle. It's starting. Where are you going next? So I'm in Beijing right now, just arrived. And uh, the plan is to kind of pause here and take a bit of a break, do some work. And then in a month or so, start walking through Dongbei, northeastern China, those provinces that are pine forest and, and mixed hardwood forest that turn this glorious fall colors in, in the autumn and walk through that area in the autumn hmm. towards the Amur River that divides northeastern China from Siberia. And then after that, question mark, right? I just don't know what's going to happen when I reach the Russian border. Paul Salopek, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to touch base. Thanks a lot, Steve. You can read more about Paul Salopek's journey out of Eden in the latest issue of National Geographic. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then, coming up at 7.45 on WBOR's Morning Edition, we hear about an effort by a group of residents in Charlestown to gain recognition for the first battlefield of the Revolutionary War. It's 7.29. Use the WBOR app to listen live anywhere. It lets you pause and rewind. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Refuge Point, finding lasting solutions for refugees so they can thrive. This World Refugee Day, learn how you can help at refugepoint.org slash WBUR. BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Babson. Top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News and World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. Coast Guard and ships from Canada continue to search for a private deep-sea vessel that's been missing for two days in the North Atlantic. A pilot and four tourists were aboard the submersible known as Titan to get a look at the wreckage of Titanic. A Canadian research ship lost contact with Titan about an hour and 45 minutes after it went below the surface on Sunday morning. The Coast Guard says Titan has enough oxygen for 96 hours or until sometime Thursday. Kristen Romy is an editor with National Geographic. She's familiar with that vessel. It has a much larger window um, that enables um, paying guests uh, to view the remarkable scene around them, as well as um, large video screens, massive lights and cameras. The search area is about 900 miles off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. President Biden is in California, where yesterday he announced $600 million for projects to address climate change. The impacts we're seeing in climate change are only going to get more frequent and more ferocious and more costly. 
president was speaking in Palo Alto after touring a nature preserve and wetland area with California Governor Gavin Newsom. The president also attended a pair of campaign fundraisers for his reelection. He has two more scheduled today, along with an event in San Francisco. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Teachers at an exam school in Roxbury do not want their campus moved to West Roxbury. They say the move would make it more difficult for kids to commute to the O'Brien School of Mathematics and Science. WBUR's Max Larkin tells us they're also worried it could affect the school's demographics. There are some who see this as both a symbolic and a material loss at the heart of black Boston, that students may lose ties to the colleges and museums and that the community would lose out as well. The school is named after John D. O'Brien, the first black man to serve on Boston School Committee, and a move to West Roxbury would take it to a majority white precinct. And some worry over time that would change the students that it serves and kind of the school's identity. Boston Public Schools says the change would give the school access to improved sport and science facilities. School officials are seeking public input on the issue at a meeting tonight. It's set to be a normal morning in Waltham after a power surge caused fires and outages there yesterday. Eversource says the surge knocked out power to about 6,000 customers. Most residents now have their power back. This is the second power surge in the city within a year. Last October, a similar incident caused several transformer fires. Boston is getting $3 million to help foster critical conversations around the city's monuments. City leaders say it'll be used to add historical context to existing monuments. It'll also fund temporary art installations. The grant money is from Mellon Foundation's Monuments Project. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. The Red Sox beat the Twins 9-3 last night in Minneapolis. The two teams meet again tonight. Mostly cloudy with highs near 70 today. It falls into the 50s tonight and stays cloudy. Tomorrow starts out cloudy, then skies clear for a mostly sunny day. We'll have highs back near 70. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Algorithms are everywhere in today's world, and it turns out they're used in the social safety net, too. The government of Jordan uses algorithms to screen applicants for its National Cash Assistance Program. And that program, which is partially supported by the World Bank, provides aid to more than 200,000 poor households. But according to Human Rights Watch, the technology is shutting some people out. Our co-host Leila Fadl spoke with senior researcher Amos Toe. 
What we found was that it actually leads to very trivial distinctions between families who qualify and families who don't qualify. One of the indicators, for example, measures whether you have a car, and it also takes into account factors like the value, the age of your car, people who have cars. Below five years of age are automatically disqualified, but if you have cars above five years of age, those other factors come into play. But even this seemingly complicated indicator doesn't actually account for situations where you know families who have older cars might be able to afford petrol one week, and the next week they have to hitchhike because they simply have run out of money. Mm, so it doesn't take the nuance of people's lived experiences. If you could give me an example of somebody that you spoke to that was shut out of this program, what got them shut out, and how did that impact their life? We spoke to a family in one of the poorest villages in the country, and she had received the benefit for some time, and then was dropped in 2022. She is still trying to make sense of why she was dropped for the benefit, but she suspects that the fact that they own a car may have factored into their subsequent rejection from the program. She said, "You know, the car destroyed us. Look at it; it's sitting down there on the street, and we can't use it." And we actually have to hitchhike mm. um, to do basic tasks. So that's the kind of situation that we kept coming across when we were interviewing families in Jordan. The World Bank has talked about this automated tech that you studied as quote the cornerstone of inclusive social policies. What did it say when it looked at your findings? I think the World Bank's response really is that this form of targeting is one of the most cost-effective ways to distribute social protection and to distribute the limited resources that are available. So, what is the solution here? Then, are you saying that they should just make the algorithms smarter? Our recommendation is that. These algorithms should be gotten rid of altogether. Targeting algorithms do not work in this context. They have been flawed for a long time, and the tendency now to try to improve them with better data, better technology, we worry that it will actually exacerbate chronic problems with poverty-targeted programs. How many places depend on algorithms like this to disseminate social welfare? Globally, the World Bank has said that the number of countries that have taken up this technology has gone from 23 to 60.、Mm-hmm. So, increasingly, a number of countries are relying on these kinds of technology to distribute cash assistance, despite some of the growing problems that we have documented. Amos To is a senior researcher with Human Rights Watch. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. The World Bank says in a statement that the cash transfer program it supports in Jordan has provided a lifeline to the country's poorest people and made the government's social safety net more expansive and effective. In Iran, public protests against rules forcing women to wear the hijab, the Islamic headscarf, have ended at least for now. Meanwhile, though, Iranian lawmakers are working on new legislation aimed at toughening the crackdown against women for improper wearing of the hijab. But protesters are still finding new ways to make their voices heard, as NPR's Peter Kenyon reports from Istanbul. Among the latest battlegrounds are shopping malls and private businesses. I reached Terlan, a 36-year-old researcher and market analyst from Tehran, via WhatsApp. 
She asked that her family name not be used. She worries about government reprisals for speaking with the media about the protests. Terlan says the mass demonstration sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masa Jina Amini in police custody last year may have stopped, but the struggle for women's rights is definitely continuing, and it's not hard to see signs that the protests have had an impact. For example, she says for decades authorities have forced businesses to shut down if they permitted women on the premises without the hijab. In the past, she says, once businesses reopened, they would routinely warn women to wear the headscarf or leave, but now they don't bother. The fact that they decided to shut a major shopping mall in the hope of stopping such acts of civil disobedience and to force women to wear the hijab made us think that once they reopened, the shops would warn us or not let us in. But this is not what happened. Terlan says there's also a new freedom in restaurants. In the past, if a woman's scarf fell off, a waiter would rush to warn her to put it back on. Now, she says, no one says anything. Iranian lecturer on human rights Muin Hazali also consults for human rights organizations in Sweden. I reached him in Malmo, where he told me that the norms of Iranian society are definitely shifting since Masajina Amini's death. Unfortunately, he says, the government's attitude hasn't changed. Hazali says, for instance, officials announced amnesties for thousands of protesters earlier this year. But after reaping the positive publicity, he says they launched a new series of prosecutions against some of those same demonstrators. Many of them are now facing new charges that they weren't facing in the past, actually. So it's getting even worse since the order by the leader in February that these people should be forgiven. Analysts say hardliners are pushing for harsher punishment for protesters, and a new law is being drafted that is expected to provide them. Tara Saperi Farr with Human Rights Watch says the authorities seem to be particularly worried about female actors and other well-known Iranian women not wearing the hijab, because that sends a message to millions of Iranian women that they too can discard the headscarf if they want to. Over the past month or so, we have seen the judiciary opening cases against several actors, female actors who have appeared in public without the hijab. And the draft law that is being proposed has very clear provisions that in the case of those who can be categorized as public figure, there's a different level of punishment. Safari Farr says it's hard to see how the huge changes of recent months could be reversed. Public discontent is at all-time high. The reality is that the message of respect for freedom of choice is getting momentum by the day. It is a transformation that has been in the making. Women have been the lead for that. It's also asserting the agency of women at various layers of the society, including family. And that is not reversible. She doesn't think new legislation will change public attitudes, and she wonders what Iran's hardliners will try next in their bid to quash displays of what critics call the people's contempt for their leaders. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.10, Israel is going forward with plans for a settlement on the occupied West Bank, despite pressure from U.S. officials who say they are deeply troubled and that the move is an obstacle to peace. Overcast and near 70 today, 50s tonight, then clearing skies make way for a sunny day tomorrow, and we'll have temperatures back near 70. It's 59 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community. 
honoring artists who banded together more than 40 years ago to buy an old warehouse and form the first artist co-op building in Massachusetts. See art commemorating the co-op at 249 A Street, on view now at Atlantic Wharf Gallery, fortpointarts.org. People looking to buy a home in Massachusetts have fewer options to choose from. That's according to the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. The group's data shows single-family home listings were down 19 percent last month compared to the year before. David McCarthy is the association's president. If you're a seller in this market, the market continues to remain pretty nice. And if you're a buyer, there's still strong competition. We just don't have enough inventory to sell And in the Commonwealth, we're just not building enough homes. The median sales price for a home in the state ticked up slightly last month to just over $616,000. Worcester-based Spectrum Health Systems plans to move its headquarters to Westboro next year. The mental health nonprofit will also open two new facilities in Westboro. The Worcester Business Journal reports that includes a new intake center for substance abuse treatment. It's 744. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10, this and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This past weekend, Charlestown marked the 248th anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill. And now, with just two years to go until the big 250th anniversary, a group of Charlestown residents are pushing to get official recognition of the area where the battle took place. They're hoping the designation will help protect against encroaching development, development that some other residents welcome. So right now we're on the corner of Decatur and Medford Street. Joanna Hines is a longtime Charlestown resident who's president of the new nonprofit Charlestown Historic Battlefield District Committee. So this whole area, the British came up along this edge. Everything from Medford that way toward the monument is part of the original peninsula. Because Charlestown was a peninsula back when the battle happened. It's changed a lot since then with landfill being used to expand the neighborhood. That landfill is now to our right and to our left is the 1930s era Bunker Hill housing project with the Bunker Hill monument in the distance behind it. 
After years of community activism and negotiations, the project is being demolished and redeveloped, a process many project residents welcome as their units have deteriorated. Hines wants them to be able to continue living here, but her group is upset about the number of old trees being cut down in the process of redevelopment. Betty, woo, you're looking good. What's going on with the hair? Love it. This is Big Mama. Thank you. Betty Carrington is a longtime community activist. She and Joanna Hines have been friends for years, and they quickly fall into friendly disagreement. Carrington's focus is on the redevelopment going forward as planned, so the project's residents have new homes and can move out of the dire conditions many are living in. I believe that this fight you're fighting should have been fought a long time ago. You understand what I'm saying? And I believe that they should have done something about it a long time ago. What I don't think is that we, the people on this development, should go without housing because of it. That's what I think. Hines and I walked to Monument Square where rebel soldiers constructed an earthen fort in 1775 in preparation for the first battle against the British Army. Now it's a National Historic Park and the 221-foot-tall granite Bunker Hill Monument is on the National Register of Historic Places. The monument's on the register, but it's a marker of a battlefield that is not. A man walking his dog in the grass in the shadow of the obelisk calls out. Hey, Joanna, you're the best. You're Thank the greatest, baby. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Thank you, Walter. We love you. <laughs> I love you, too. I think that much of the history here is recognized because there are plaques and markers and symbols that tell the story physically, but these things are not being recognized on the local, state, and national registers where they ought to be. And when places or sites aren't recognized on these registers, they're not eligible for the same sorts of protections. Hines says that if the Bunker Hill battlefield had those protections, Charlestown residents would have more power to fight for measures that would keep their neighborhood from becoming a heat island and flood zone. Her group is taking steps to establish a Charlestown Landmarks Commission that they believe would have the ability to bestow the historic battlefield designation. Coming up at 8.20, Major League Baseball superstar Shohei Otani is in the middle of another great season. We visit his ex-Little League team in northern Japan. It's 7.50. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics, BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The Coast Guard in Boston is leading a search in the Atlantic for a 21-foot submarine and its five passengers that went missing during an expedition to the Titanic wreckage. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in London to discuss ways to support Ukraine against the Russian invasion. And in Romania, the controversial influencer Andrew Tate has been charged with rape and human trafficking. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Mostly cloudy and around 70 today. It drops into the 50s tonight. Then skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day tomorrow with temperatures near 70. It's 60 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. What's the toughest thing about fifth grade? I'm most stressed out about. I'm most stressed out I'm by. I'm most stressed about. I'm most stressed. I am by. most stressed out by family expectations, schoolwork, my parents, home, getting good grades, school. For these students from Charles N. Holden Elementary School in Chicago, a big challenge is dealing with stress. So they made a podcast about it. One of the more than 3,300 entries our education team received from across the country in the fifth annual NPR Student Podcast Challenge. This morning, we run down our list of finalists in grades 5 through 8. In their entry, self-care fanfare, Era Nivas and Leslie Herrera Godinez map out a plan for dealing with those school pressures. Today, Leslie and I will dive into the ins and outs of self-care. They surveyed their classmates to find out the major causes of stress, and they interviewed a school counselor who recommends solutions. In my fifth grade classroom, where it seems like a competition of who is louder every day, it is important to let my ego take over and slow down. But lots of kids don't know how to do this. That's where Ms. Muzzy's job comes in. Um, I do work with a lot of kids on how to be mindful and practice self-care because a lot of times it does take practice to learn. Our student podcasters this year took on a wide range of issues, the opioid crisis, mental health, and this piece from Emma Forges and Brenna Colmenares at Highlands Intermediate School in Pearl City, Hawaii. Their podcast looks at efforts to free wrongly convicted inmates in their state. The Hawaii Innocence Project's job is not too easy. When Ian Schweitzer was wrongly incarcerated, there was no way to prove it. Since then, forensic science has changed drastically, making it easier to help prisoners. Sadly, and not surprisingly, we got quite a few student podcasts this year about gun violence and mass shootings. It's clearly a sign of the times. Virginia Tech, April 16, 2007, 33 victims. Sandy Hook Elementary School, December 14, 2012, 28 victims. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, February 14, 2018, 17 victims. Cole Anderson, Iris Beachy Quick, and Yulia Valkoviak from Compass Community Collaborative School in Fort Collins, Colorado, tackled the devastating numbers and the implications for children in their podcast, An Assault on Our Future. We need to provide our youth with a safe, stress-free environment without the looming threat of a shooting just around the corner. A simple way to help keep our school safe is to be aware and report any suspicious behavior. Our finalists include podcasts about dance, sports, the arts, and this one about, well, let's let this podcaster from a race school in Washington, D.C. explain. 
Hello, and welcome to Classical Composers and Their Furry Friends. My name is Dahlia and Audra, and I will be your host today. Do you love classical music and your pets? If so, keep listening! We will be talking about classical music composers whose work was influenced by pets. You gotta hear the rest of this. It goes into how dogs and cats played a role in some famous pieces of classical music like Domenico Scarlatti's Sonata in G minor K30. The theme of this piece was actually inspired by Domenico Scarlatti's cat Pulcinella. Pulcinella had walked on Scarlatti's keyboard hitting the notes G natural, B flat, E flat, F sharp, A little help from a four-legged friend. To hear more of this podcast and the rest of our middle school finalists, go to npr.org. And later today on All Things Considered, we'll feature our high school finalists. And tomorrow, we'll announce this year's grand prize winners. Hey, A, question. Mm -hmm. See. What do these things have in common? Lance Armstrong's (laughs) bicycle, Superman's cape, the flag that inspired the Star Spangled Banner and Tito Puente's drums. I don't know. Tell us. I, I, I know it's too early for all this, right? <laughs> no, we're going to let NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg do that. They're all part of a spiffy, noisy, newish exhibition at the Smithsonian Museum of American History. We cover about 150 years of entertainment history in the United States. Curator John Trapman and staff sorted through thousands of objects, many scattered in various exhibits throughout the museum, and put about 200 of them together in Entertainment Nation to tell American history through things that amused or thrilled or dismayed or moved us over decades. We have taken about 10 steps and we have gone past Marian Anderson, (laughs) R2-D2, Judy Garland, What's entertainment without the ruby slippers or Prince's guitar? We performed some paint analysis on a paint chip on the back of the guitar and found seven layers of paint, different colors. We were able to determine um, with all likelihood that this is the guitar that's actually in the film Purple Rain. What's entertainment without Archie Bunker's beat-up armchair? Archie and Edith both played such different roles on that show. One's a bigot and one's not. (laughs) And that was Norman Lear's intention to really explore the power of television and convening these conversations. On All in the Family, Archie helped us talk about race. Oh, this is Althea Gibson's tennis dress? The History Museum shows its spotless, immaculate, African-American Gibson wore it when she won at Wimbledon in 1958. Segregation was a widespread fact of life. In a white world, her triumph was color. Mr. Rogers' red cardigan, Oscar's trash can. Visitors of all ages love (laughs) this moment where they turn around the corner and they see Oscar the Grouch, (laughs) they see Elmo. It's all kind of a celebration of children's television and how children's television also has worked in important ways to inform kids about the big stuff. Race, fairness, ideals, death, and fears, all touched on by things we bought, heard, saw, laughed at, loved over the decades. Entertainment Nation. One of the strong takeaways is that there's a persistence of common 
concerns and goals and ambitions for people in this country. Curator John Troutman's best hope is that visitors will realize... Important questions about our democracy are everywhere and in entertainment. (laughs) Susan Stamberg, NPR News, Washington. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. For more information, visit bu.edu met. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rescuers are racing to find a submarine carrying five people that's gone missing in the Atlantic while visiting the wreck of the Titanic. It's Tuesday, June 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up... There could have been uh, an accident. It could have become entangled in the wreckage of of Titanic. Uh, It could indeed uh, have had a catastrophic failure. We have the latest on the Coast Guard search out of Boston. Also this hour, at least 23 people were shot, one fatally, at a Juneteenth celebration over the weekend in suburban Chicago. The motive behind this incident is unclear, and this is still an active investigation. Plus, Boston's plan to move the O'Brien School from Roxbury to West Roxbury draws pushback. Why are you going to take a school like this that was named after a black man that fought and helped us and put it to West Roxbury? Mostly cloudy, near 70 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Fresh from his trip to China, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in London today. He's meeting with his British counterpart and then attending a Ukraine recovery conference. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from London. Blinken is meeting with the U.K. Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, who is tightening his government's sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. The U.K. plans to keep Russian assets frozen even after the war ends, until Moscow agrees to pay compensation for damage to infrastructure and property. That's part of the focus of this week's two-day conference, along with plans for rebuilding Ukraine after the war. Blinken has said China could play a role, possibly in peace talks, if Russian President Vladimir Putin can be convinced to come to the negotiating table or in reconstruction. China has already built part of the Kyiv metro. The European Commission is also announcing millions more in recovery funds. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. Meanwhile, Russia has again attacked Ukraine overnight with missiles and drones. The BBC's Mayani Jones is in the capital, Kyiv, one of several cities that was attacked. What was unusual is the fact that these strikes seem to be happening right across the country. So from the east, where Ukrainian forces are engaged in a counteroffensive against Russian forces, right through to Lviv in the west near the border with 
Poland. The Ukrainian authorities say that 35 attack drones were launched altogether. They were able to repel 32 of them. And they've also said that in the southern region of Zaporizhia, where they have been regaining territory, they say that seven missiles were launched towards the city of Zaporizhia and its suburbs. The BBC's Mayani Jones reporting. Searchers are scouring part of the North Atlantic Ocean for a missing submersible vessel. The submersible had five passengers aboard who descended to look at the wreck of the Titanic. It failed to check in Sunday and has not been heard from. Senate Democrats say they're planning to hold hearings into the proposed partnership between the PGA Tour and Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the mergers raised concerns among lawmakers. Senator Richard Blumenthal is leading the probe into the merger. Speaking over the weekend, the Connecticut Democrat told CBS that Americans deserve the right to know the facts of the deal. Not prejudging what the conclusions will be, but what the Saudis are doing here is not taking control of a single team. They are, in effect, taking charge of the entire sport. Blumenthal has informed the PGA that a Senate committee has requested records from the tour and Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. The deal could be reviewed by the Committee on Foreign Investment, which analyzes mergers regarding potential threats to national security. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren says a proposed bill to force executives at failed banks to give back their bonuses will discourage risky behavior going forward. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the Massachusetts Democrat has found bipartisan support in the Senate for that idea. Warren has teamed up with J.D. Vance, a conservative Republican from Ohio, to sponsor the bill. It would require the government to claw back executive compensation at large banks that lobbied successfully for lighter regulations, only to see their banks collapse. The banks loaded up on risk, and then the executives paid themselves ginormous bonuses. The clawbacks bill says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, if you blow your bank up, the FDIC can come get those bonuses back from you. Warren says the legislation would check excessive risk-taking by the banking industry. It's not yet clear if it will find traction in the GOP-led House. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Doctors, nurses, and healthcare advocates are backing legislation aimed at overhauling the state's essential health service closure process. That bill is up for a hearing today at the State House. Massachusetts Nurses Association President Kate Murphy says it would mandate a one year notification before a hospital or healthcare unit could close. So that the community has, uh, you know, a much longer time hearing about this, the services being closed, and that if the PPH deems that they are essential, that we can keep them open. Murphy points to the recent closures of an addiction program in Taunton and a maternity unit in Leominster that have forced people to travel farther for care. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret documents is set to appear in federal court tomorrow. Last week, a grand jury indicted Jack Teixeira on six counts of taking and transmitting classified information. Each of those charges carries up to a 10-year prison sentence. 
A funeral for one of the youngest ever speakers of the Massachusetts House will be held today. David Bartley was elected House Speaker at 33 years old. He was 88 when he died last week. His funeral mass will be held in Holyoke later this morning. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The Red Sox began a week-long road trip last night with a win. They beat the Minnesota Twins 9-3. It was win number 400 for Alex Cora as Red Sox manager. The Sox and Twins will meet again tonight. Mostly cloudy today. It'll be near 70. Mostly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the 70s. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. A submersible on its way to explore the wreck of the Titanic at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean may have suffered a tragedy of its own. The vessel named Titan lost contact with its support ship on Sunday after descending into the ocean. It has five people on board, and the company that operates Titan, OceanGate, charges passengers a quarter million dollars for a trip to see the world's most famous shipwreck. The U.S. Coast Guard is searching for the sub, but Rear Admiral John Mauger says time is running out. We understand from the operator of the vessel that the vessel was designed with a 96-hour sustainment uh, capability if there was an emergency on board. For more on what this kind of search might involve, we called retired U.S. Navy submarine captain David Marquet. Good morning, Captain. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Michelle. So I get the sense that this kind of operation is particularly challenging. Is it the kinds of waters Titan was operating in, or is it the fact of this being a tiny sub in the big ocean? Yeah, all of that. Tiny sub, big ocean, and extremely deep water and several hundred miles away from the coast. So it's basically imagining a spacecraft disappeared on the far side of the moon. A, Mm -hmm. you have to find it. B, you have to get to it. And even when you get to it, you could be standing outside of it in another spacecraft. You still need to somehow get the people out of there to safety. So there are a lot of challenges with this particular rescue mission. Can you give us a sense of what the rescue crews are doing right now to try to find it? Uh, Sure. The Coast Guard, uh, as um, you had the quote from the Admiral earlier, the Coast Guard is flying airplanes. They're looking visually on the surface. They're coordinating with Canadians. The Canadians are also flying airplanes. The Canadians, one of their airplanes is a submarine hunting airplane, so it's dropping sonar buoys. Now, usually the way these sonar buoys work is they're listening for noise from the submarine. And since there's a row of these sonar buoys, we can triangulate from where the noise is coming from and get a pretty good location of the submarine. Now, the problem is in this case, it doesn't appear that the submarine's making any noise because they're not recording any signals. Hmm. So that makes it a lot harder. Now, basically, the next step would be to do high-resolution scanning of the bottom using sonar. And this thing is um, its about as big as a large SUV. Wow. 
Okay. And it's in an area where, of course, the Titanic is and Titanic debris field and there are other rock formations. So that will be a lengthy process. So if, let's say, best case scenario, the sub can be found, how would the people on board be rescued if they're stuck in deep water? Yeah, so this submarine is a small submersible. When you get in it, they actually bolt the hatch on from the outside. So they don't even have the ability to open the hatch. They couldn't open it against the sea pressure. The sea pressure down there is 400 times what we feel here at the atmosphere. So they couldn't open it anyway. But even if we got them to the surface, we need a team from the outside to open it. The answer is we got to get the ship up to the surface. Now, the good news is because it's only 21 feet long, it weighs about 10 tons, that there is equipment. We could hook a crane or a grappling hook or some kind of a hook to draw the thing back up to the surface. That, again, requires a special ship with a two-and-a-half-mile cable and the ability to get the hook actually onto the submersible. So, so we only have about 30 seconds left, so here's the terrible question. What are the chances that anybody has survived whatever happened to the sub? I'm hopeful, but I think the family should prepare themselves for bad news. I would, I would say at this point about 1%. Uh, well, let's, let's all keep a good thought. That's David Marquet. He's a retired U.S. Navy submarine captain and the author of Turn the Ship Around. Captain, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. New developments in the Israeli-occupied West Bank are worrying the international community. Thousands of new homes for Israeli settlers are set to be advanced next week. That's after Israel has changed the process for approving settlement construction, making it easier for Israeli settlers to claim more land that Palestinians want for a country of their own. The U.S., the EU, and U.N. are calling this an obstacle to peace, and it comes during a violent time in the West Bank. NPR's Daniel Estrin is with us from Tel Aviv. Uh, Daniel, tell us uh, what happened yesterday in the West Bank. We saw some new worrying trends yesterday and just in the last couple of weeks in general, heavier weaponry and greater casualties. What we've been seeing for more than a year now is that almost every night Israeli troops raid a Palestinian city, uh, arrest suspects. They're trying to prevent Palestinian shootings on Israelis. But these military raids lead to gun battles and troops end up regularly killing young Palestinians, uh, high casualties. What we saw in the raid yesterday was that Palestinian militants are becoming more emboldened, more sophisticated in their weaponry. We saw a rare roadside bomb go off targeting an armored personnel carrier. The army says it's quite an advanced bomb that, that went off. It wounded several soldiers. And for the first time in two decades, Israel deployed an attack helicopter to help extract soldiers. So we're seeing heavier weaponry being used by both sides. And yesterday was a fierce battle where Palestinian officials said Israeli troops killed six Palestinians, including a 15-year-old. So now there are these calls in Israel for a wider offensive to prevent the spread of roadside bombs so they do not target Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And we mentioned earlier, Daniel, that Israel is working to expand the presence of settlers in the West Bank. How is that happening? Right. In a couple of ways. Next week, Israel is planning to advance about 4,800 new settler homes throughout the West Bank. That total number of settler homes this year being advanced is nearly triple the number last year. 
Also, this week, Israel changed the rules on how it plans new settlement homes. It has expedited the process. It's given sweeping decision powers to a far-right pro-settler cabinet minister who openly says that he wants to expand the settler population and prevent a Palestinian state. This new approval process for settler homes could make it harder for countries like the U.S. to do what it has done for years, which is step in in the early stages of these settler plans and stop some of the more controversial ones. This is now a quicker pipeline that settlement homes are going to be approved much more quickly. So that's why the U.S., the EU, the U.N. have all spoken out. These moves deepen Israel's occupation of the West Bank. They also make it even harder to see a future where Israel can uproot from these areas and let Palestinians have their own country. Yeah, but there are no peace talks at all right now. So how does the recent violence and these uh, new decisions on settlements affect uh, where things are headed there? We are seeing a leadership vacuum in the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian president is deeply unpopular and deeply ineffective in advancing the Palestinian cause and freedom from Israeli occupation. And a young generation of Palestinians taking up arms, filling up that vacuum, and also on the Israeli side, a settler leadership taking up key positions of power in the government. NPR international correspondent Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thanks. You're welcome. In Virginia, today's the final day of voting in what has been a very expensive primary season. Republicans took control of the House of Delegates and the governor's mansion two years ago. The competition is expected to be intense in the general election this fall. But first, both parties are dealing with brand new legislative maps. Following all of this is Margaret Barthel of member station WAMU. Margaret, tell us uh, all about this primary. Yeah, a, the big story here is that Virginia's latest redistricting process really shook things up politically. Um, it drew quite a few older incumbents into the same districts, which prompted retirements. And we're talking people with a lot of power who've been shaping this body for a while. Um, both Senate majority and minority leaders, for instance, are retiring after this year. Redistricting also created some entirely new districts, and it emboldened quite a few primary challengers to go up against some of the remaining incumbents. Yeah, so depending on how races go today, it, it sounds like it could be a very different looking legislature after November. Yeah, exactly. If incumbents struggle to hold on to their seats, that could mean still more turnover. Uh, people in the Democratic Party in Northern Virginia are especially concerned about loss of experience and influence among the regional delegation. And some voters are too, like uh, Marsha Marinich. If we lived in a safer country right now where, you know, people were not leaning towards ideologies and so forth, I might vote for a less experienced person. But right now I'm looking at experience. But the challengers still have a shot. Their campaigns have a lot of money. Uh, some of them have spent nearly $1 million already. And they're making the case for a younger, more diverse, more progressive vision of the Democratic Party. Now, Republican uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin's victory in 2021, I think, surprised some because it seemed like the state was trending blue. What GOP priorities has he been able to get done while taking office? 
Yeah, he's definitely had some key wins. Probably one of the biggest is a big tax cut that he got through in the budget deal last year. Um, but because Democrats have control of the state Senate, they've been able to block a lot of the stuff on Youngkin's agenda. Think things like a 15-week abortion ban and school choice legislation. And so for someone who's kind of flirting with presidential ambitions like Youngkin is, not getting those cultural conservative wins is a bit of a problem. All right, how about the races today on the Republican side. Yeah, there are a few more competitive contests that pit these kind of establishment Republicans versus further right challengers. Um, Yunkin has tended to support more establishment candidates when he has endorsed. And more broadly, he's got a lot riding on who ultimately wins control of the General Assembly in November, of course. Um, and his political action committee is really gearing up for that. Um, earlier this spring, they announced they had nearly $3 million in the bank, which is record setting. Margaret Barthel of WAMU. Margaret, thanks for checking in. My pleasure, Ray. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get reaction to a scathing new Justice Department report about the Minneapolis Police Department. It alleges that racial discrimination and excessive force went unchecked before George Floyd's death. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. The Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest Protestant denomination, overwhelmingly voted to oust women from church leadership. It feels like being kicked out of the family, perhaps even like a divorce, as one of my friends said. What's driving this crackdown, and what impact could it have on the church's already declining population? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A heads up for drivers on the North Shore. 128 is closed in both directions in Manchester-by-the-Sea. That's because of a car crash there. At least some lanes should reopen shortly. A high near 70 today under overcast skies, still cloudy tonight, and it falls to a low around 56. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy skies, gradually clear for a sunny day near 70 degrees. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. Summer officially begins tomorrow, so maybe it's time to make that summer reading list. We have you covered with our Beach Reads newsletter. Get ideas, whether you're looking for sci-fi, romance, nonfiction, or any other genre. Sign up to Today at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson. A junior stargazers convention is disrupted by an alien encounter. Now playing in New York and Los Angeles, in theaters everywhere this Friday. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. 
Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Anime Martinez, the last time a Major League Baseball player has come close to hitting and pitching as well as Los Angeles Angels star Shohei Otani has in the same season was legendary icon Babe Ruth over 100 years ago. That's when he was still a member of the Red Sox. That's how unprecedented Otani's career has been so far. NPR's Anthony Kuhn traced Otani's roots back to northern Japan and reports on some of the people and places that contributed to his rise. Otani's former Little League team, the Mizusawa Pirates, warm up at a weekend practice. Mizusawa is Otani's hometown in northern Japan's Iwate Prefecture. He played here between the ages of 8 and 14. Coach Shoji Asari remembers how Otani, who bats left-handed, often homered over the right field fence and into a river. He says the cost of the lost baseballs began to add up. So I jokingly told him, don't pull your hits, Shohei. He shot me a dagger-like look and then hit his next homer to left field. I think that was when he found the fun of opposite field hitting. That skill has served Otani well, including in this game against the Texas Rangers last week. And Otani with the drive, left field, hit well. This ball is deep, Jankowski's back, and it's gone! Shohei has given the Angels the lead! But it was obvious early on that Otani wasn't just a talented hitter. He pitched blazing fastballs and baffling sliders that were hard to hit. They were also very hard to catch. One person who found that out was Ryuki Sasaki, Otani's catcher in high school. I had never caught a ball from a pitcher who could throw it more than 87 miles per hour. Also, his slider curves too much, and my body couldn't react in time. In the beginning, I couldn't catch his pitches at all. Coach Asadi is pleased at how his former player is doing in the U.S., but he doesn't take any credit for it. He made it big all due to his own efforts. We had nothing to do with it. Look at this place. There is really nothing here. He just came here to practice, and he looked like he was really having fun. Asadi is not just being modest. He says that for his team, having fun is more important than winning. That's unusual, says Nobuya Kobayashi, a sports journalist and author of a book about Otani. He says that in Japan, little leaguers hone their skills by doing repetitive drills. In Mizusawa, the kids practice catching runners in one rundown after another. The drills are great for technique, says Kobayashi, but they're not much fun. Most Japanese baseball players train hard how to play, suppress their own feelings, be patient and practice exactly as their coach says. But Coach Asari let his players grow freely, so Otani has continued to enjoy baseball the whole time. Kobayashi says that anyone who has ever had fun playing baseball as a kid will be reminded of it when they see Otani play. Catcher Ryuki Sasaki says that Otani's love of baseball is one thing about him that has not changed. No matter what the results are for him, his team's victory simply makes him happy. I think even now, he plays with the mind of an elementary school kid who loves baseball. Otani is famous for his double sword style, or nitoryu. That's what Japanese call double threat players who excel at both pitching and hitting. 
Lots of kids in Japan do it in Little League, but not in pro baseball. Nobuya Kobayashi says Otani insisted on doing both in Japan's pro leagues, despite the objections of most teams. To the Japanese way of thinking, it was impossible. There's an atmosphere in Japanese society that rejects people who try to do something different. So Japanese society didn't want a special person like Otani. Last year, Major League Baseball made it a rule that a pitcher can still bat as designated hitter even after being relieved on the mound. It's called the Otani rule. So Otani has rewritten the rules of the game and the terms on which he plays by force of his extraordinary talent. But the question in some observers' minds is, how long can he keep it up? Coach Asadi doubts that the double sword style is sustainable in the long term. It's up to the kids, but really, it's impossible. Even in America, only Babe Ruth could do it. You'd better not do it. You could get injured. Kobayashi worries that Otani has prioritized power, bulked up too much, and could get hurt. Otani has admitted feeling some fatigue this season, but far from burning out, he leads the major leagues in home runs with 24 so far this season. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Mizusawa, Japan. For some people, and you know who you are, barbecuing is as much about the gear as the food. You got to have this smoker or that grill, plus all your other stuff. NPR's Nita Ulibi spoke with an advocate of a more minimalist approach. The British cookbook writer James Wetler is not impressed by your big green egg or your Traeger grill or your fancy schmancy anything. You want a tandoori oven? He says, just go to Home Depot. You buy one big flower pot and a couple of bags of sand and two terracotta pots and you've got yourself a tandoor. Wetler's new cookbook. DIY Barbecue shows you how to safely cook outside by digging a hole in the ground or draping skewers over a cinder block. No beach or backyard necessary, just a square of outside space, food, and summer tunes. Ideally, American 70s rock classics. You do not even need a grill, Wetler insists, and he's won a James Beard Award. There's a whole movement you may have missed, he says, called dirty cooking. It's like cooking directly on coals. Like, that's exactly what it is. Like laying your food right on the charcoal? You can do it brilliantly with steak. You've got a nice, really hot coals. Just lay your steak straight on it. Brush off the ash and bon appetit. I told James Wetler I'd be intimidated to stick a steak straight on the coals. You should get over it. You should be able to. I think you can do it. Wetler also includes lots of vegetarian recipes in his book. He writes about barbecue's environmental impact and how it developed among indigenous and enslaved people. Any food that we eat, I think we should acknowledge the history and the tradition and the culture behind it because it just makes it so much more interesting. It makes you a better cook because you understand more about it. And today, he says, barbecuing outdoors is a surefire way to start up conversations, to nourish our shared human hunger for a hearth. Neto Ulibi, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We get the latest on the debate over Boston Public Schools' controversial plan to move the O'Brien School from Roxbury to West Roxbury. It's 829. Today's episode of our podcast, The Common, is out. Host Daryl C. Murphy talks to our arts team about their summer arts guide. It'll help you make plans for everything from outdoor concerts to indoor museum exhibits. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. Coast Guard is continuing to search the North Atlantic for a private deep-sea vessel that's been missing for two days. A Canadian research ship lost contact with the Titan on Sunday, not long after it submerged with five people aboard to get a look at the Titanic more than two miles below the surface. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in London for a conference examining ways to rebuild Ukraine once Russia's war ends. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says Blinken traveled to the British capital from Beijing, where Ukraine was among the issues discussed during two days of talks with Chinese officials. Secretary Blinken says he had robust talks in Beijing, including about Russia's war against Ukraine, and he tells NPR that it would be a good thing if China could use its influence with Russia. If China can play a constructive role in when the time is right, finding a just and durable peace in, um, in Ukraine and ending the Russian aggression, that would be a good thing. But China has a no-limits partnership with Russia, and it has not condemned the invasion. Blinken says China has assured him that it won't provide lethal assistance to Russia to use in Ukraine, but he's still worried that Chinese companies may be doing that. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. More now on that submarine missing in the North Atlantic. The U.S. Coast Guard in Boston is leading the search. The 21-foot sub was bringing tourists from the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador to the wreck of the Titanic. Five people are on board. They were last heard from on Sunday. Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger says the search is focusing on an area about 900 miles east of Cape Cod. Mauger says commercial ships are also helping in the search. We've been in touch with additional commercial vessels that are operating in the area, as well as initiating the movement of additional Canadian Coast Guard assets and U.S. Coast Guard surface asset into the area over the course of the next couple of days. The sub's operators say the vehicle has enough oxygen and emergency capabilities to last about 96 hours. 
Federal, state, and local lawmakers will be in Dorchester today to highlight a new requirement tying affordable child care to federal funding. In February, the Biden administration added a child care provision to the CHIPS Act. It applies to companies seeking at least $150 million for semiconductor chip manufacturing. They would need to submit to provide affordable child care for workers to receive the funds. Congresswoman Catherine Clark says the provision will make a big difference for families. Child care is crucial, critical economic infrastructure. We are leveraging private dollars to make that investment in the employees who will be building these semiconductor chips and the workers who are constructing these plants. Clark says the provision can and should be applied to other industries seeking federal funding. Eversource is investigating what caused a power surge that sparked a fire at a home in Waltham. That surge yesterday also knocked out power to about 6,000 customers. Most residents now have their power back. A similar incident happened last October. A power surge then caused transformer fires across the city. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Make it five wins in a row for the Red Sox. They beat the Twins 9-3 last night in Minneapolis. The two teams will play again tonight. Mostly cloudy with highs near 70 today. It falls into the 50s tonight and stays cloudy. Tomorrow starts out cloudy, then skies clear for a mostly sunny day. We'll have highs back near 70. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Rising gun violence is affecting communities across America. This past weekend, shootings killed and injured people in cities and rural areas spanning from Philadelphia to San Francisco. In Chicago, at least 70 people have been shot over the long holiday weekend. In one incident, one person was killed and 22 others wounded when Juneteenth celebrations turned violent early Sunday at a strip mall parking lot in the suburb of Willowbrook. The White House called the violence a tragedy. Joining us now with more is Sophie Sherry, reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Sophie, how violent was this holiday weekend in and around Chicago? So in the city of Chicago, at least 70 people were shot, like you said. Um, We believe that number is probably close to about 74 at this point. Um, Sadly, 11 of those people have died, making this the most violent weekend thus far this year and one of the deadliest. Just in the city alone, there were four mass shooting incidents where there were more than four victims hurt in a single shooting. And as you mentioned, about 20 miles outside of the city, there was a mass shooting at a Juneteenth celebration with 23 people shot. And unfortunately, one of those people has died. And does uh, anyone know what may have led to those shootings? 
So police are still investigating that shooting in the suburb of Willowbrook as to what started it. We know this was a Juneteenth celebration, a celebration that had taken place before on the same grounds in years past. There are about 200 people there, but unfortunately, police do not yet know what sparked that shooting hours into the celebration that led to 23 wounded. And this wasn't the only event where people were gathered to celebrate. Um, In Chicago, one of those mass shooting events occurred at what was a Father's Day barbecue in a neighborhood on the south side. And again, police are still looking into what sparked that incident. And I hate to do a, a tale of the tape when it comes to something as awful as this, but I mean, how does how does this weekend compare uh, to other weekends? I mean, was this exceedingly violent in comparison? So far this year, this was exceedingly violent. 73 people shot or 74 around what the count is right now um, would be the most people shot in a single weekend. Obviously, this was a long weekend, so we're including the Monday holiday. But Memorial Day weekend was also one of the most violent since 2016, with 61 people shot here in the city. But unfortunately, obviously, this past weekend, we saw far more shootings than that. And how are our city leaders trying to tackle this, trying to figure this out? Mayor Brandon Johnson spoke at an unrelated event and mentioned that this is going to take an all-hands-on-deck effort that... Everyone needs to play a part in working to reduce gun violence and was certain to touch on that this is an issue of disinvestment in neighborhoods that's going to take a lot of work and possibly time to correct. That's Sophie Sherry, reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Sophie, thanks. Thanks so much. We've been talking about the toll of gun violence all over the country, but adding to the toll in Black communities is police violence. Black Americans are three times more likely to be the victim of fatal police shootings than white Americans. That, according to several studies by public health experts. And now there's a scathing new report by the Department of Justice that found numerous examples of racism and excessive force against Black and Native Americans by the Minneapolis Police Department. The report, which was of course spurred by the police killing of George Floyd in 2020, highlights an issue that goes beyond the Minneapolis department, broken trust between police and people of color. What would change that? Rashad Robinson has been thinking about that for some time. He is president of the social justice organization Color of Change and is with us now. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. So you read the DOJ report about Minneapolis just as briefly as you can. Initial reactions, anything stand out to you? Well, I mean, it was just a litany of incident after incident, failure, systemic failure after systemic failure. And it just, in so many ways, uh, painted a larger culture of Minneapolis police departments, um, but also police departments that we see around the country. I think the the Minneapolis um, report um, from the federal government is a very clear checkup. But like any doctor's checkup, what happens next will determine how healthy um, any of this becomes. What what would that look like? What would sort of meaningful reforms look like? I'm asking you as a person who's obviously been reading reports like this for some time now. You know, even um, the most effective consent decrees isn't effective enough at tackling all the incentives that make law enforcement lawless and sometimes out of control and make that out of control behavior the norm, as we saw in the Minneapolis report. So we need more tools of concrete oversight and accountability, not just community input, but but real oversight from community. We need a new set of incentives, um, really in terms of how police departments operate, how police are rewarded. And then we also have to deal with the conditions that actually can make a decree like this work um, when they come out of a report like this. They oftentimes fail 
because the right conditions are not present. So police departments, police unions, politicians, they all have a way of undermining them. And if we actually don't deal with that type of status quo, uh, what we saw on paper will be just that, a piece of paper. A lot has been said about the fact that, you know, we're in a moment where, as we just heard, there is a lot of violence in the society right now. We can, you know, we don't have time to sort of dig into all the, the possible reasons why that is. On the one hand, you do have people who are living in fear of street crime and they want to feel safe. On the other hand, people don't want to be victimized uh, by the people who are charged with keeping them safe. Have you, you, you know, are there places where people are getting that balance right? I think there are places that are working um, towards that. And, you know, we worked with the Brookings Institute and Vera and to release our vision for public safety. It's on our website at colorofchange.org. And it is um, a report that really outlines um, investments, what we should be funding um, out in the world, like mental health, uh, like um, violence prevention programs. Um, there's a whole set of programs that have been developed that are working in communities that we're seeing um, being introduced. Um, we also know that um, the safest communities um, in our country um, are not animated by the number of police officers they have. They are animated by the type of economic development that they have. They're animated by other supports. And so if we do want to really invest in public safety and make our communities more safe, then we actually have to ensure that our budgets become those moral documents, that we're not just investing in policing, but we are investing in safety. That's Rashad Robinson. He's president of the social justice organization Color of Change. Obviously, Rashad, this is an ongoing conversation, so thanks so much for having it once again with us. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the decline in corporate support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Overcast and near 70 today, 50s tonight, then clearing skies let in some sun tomorrow and we'll have temperatures back near 70. It's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Refuge Point, finding lasting solutions for refugees so they can thrive. This World Refugee Day, learn how you can help at refugepoint.org WBUR. Buying a home in Massachusetts is only getting more competitive. Data from the Massachusetts Association of Realtors show listings for single-family homes dipped by nearly 19 percent between last May and this May. David McCarthy is the association's president. Our biggest factor is the lack of inventory, and the second factor is the mortgage interest rates. And of course, the mortgage interest rate may be tying into that as to why we have the lack of inventory. People just aren't moving because they've got a great mortgage rate. McCarthy says more homes need to be built to help balance out the market. 
Diners who frequent restaurants using the Boston-based payment software Toast will soon see a slight increase to their bill. Toast will add a new 99-cent fee to orders over $10. Company leaders say it's needed to help fund new software features. The Boston Globe reports Toast will add the fee to a small portion of restaurants today. It'll be implemented nationally next month. It's 844. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel, mybioheat.com. And Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. City officials in Boston want to move the O'Brien School of Math and Science from its campus in Roxbury to a renovated site in West Roxbury. The goal is to move the exam school, which covers grades 7 to 12, by the fall of 2026. But the plan is being met with huge resistance. WBUR's Max Larkin joins us now to discuss the plan and the pushback. Good morning, Max. Hi, Rupa. So let's start off with the school itself. What makes it so special? Well, as you said, it's one of Boston's three selective exam schools. So it's got a a pretty robust program focused on science and math and technology, but also arts, music, sports. And compared to the other two exam schools, its student body is very diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, even income and the languages spoken at home. And where exactly is the school now and what's wrong with that site? Yeah, the O'Brien right now is located in the heart of Roxbury. It shares space with Madison Park, the city's folk tech school. And I don't think anyone denies that the school's present building is inadequate, really overcrowded. The O'Brien has almost 1,600 students in grades 7 through 12. Teachers say every classroom is filled to the brim, many are windowless, and that it's time for a change. Okay, so why West Roxbury? Right. I think that's the big question still. At a press briefing earlier this month, BPS Superintendent Mary Skipper said the decision was partly a function of space. The O'Brien is a very large school, and so there's just only uh, so much space that would accommodate it to be able to get what it needs for the labs and the 21st century kind of STEM work. Now, the site they've proposed, Rupa, is the former West Roxbury Education Complex, and it has some things going for it. It's already owned by the district, and there's already a large school building there, albeit one that will need a large renovation. Okay, so that's the case for why the move would be good for the school. Why are some people concerned? Well, first, you've got many families and teachers who just felt totally blindsided by the announcement. And then once they think about it, they see a lot of problems with it. The move would take the O'Brien miles away from the geographic center of Boston, putting it almost on the city's border with Dedham. So that would affect the commute. For example, the school has 140 or so students from East Boston. This move would effectively double their commute via transit to around 90 minutes each way. Mm. And O'Brien English teacher Gabriella Rini says that's a problem. I have kids who are waking up at 445, 5 o'clock in the morning to get here um, and to tack on another, you know, at minimum 30 minutes to their commute feels like an enormous ask. 
Now, the district has said there would be dedicated shuttles that would bring kids to the West Roxbury site from sort of transit hubs near the school. Okay, so a very real logistical concern. What else is bothering people? Yeah, I think that's where it gets kind of tricky. There are some who see this as both a symbolic and a material loss at the heart of Black Boston, that students may lose ties to the colleges and museums and that the community would lose out as well. The school is named after John D. O'Brien, the first black man to serve on Boston School Committee, and a move to West Roxbury would take it to a majority white precinct. And some worry over time that would change the students that it serves and kind of the school's identity. Priscilla Flint, a Roxbury native and organizer, joined a small protest against the move outside the O'Brien School last Friday. You know, we're being gentrified out of Roxbury. We can't live here anymore because we can't afford to. So why are you going to take a school like this that was named after a black man that fought and helped us and put it to West Roxbury. How is the district responding to this pushback? Yeah, this evening, the district is hosting a remote forum to discuss the plan. A district spokesman also told me that city officials have spoken with former O'Brien leaders and alumni. They also plan to organize a steering committee that would prepare the next steps. But I think it remains to be seen, Rupa, whether skeptics of the move can persuade the city to pursue an alternate course, an alternate site, before this comes to a vote of the Boston School Committee. WBUR education reporter Max Larkin, thank you so much for breaking this down for us. Thanks for having me. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on a disturbing investigation into a global monkey torture ring. Plus, an international view on the first anniversary of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with the Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. Election workers across 22 states tell NPR they have received threats or felt unsafe doing their jobs. They said that they were coming for my family and somebody would have to pay for this. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As the country braces for 2024, worries about what the next election cycle may bring. More on that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The Coast Guard in Boston is leading the search for a submarine that went missing with five people on board during a dive to the Titanic shipwreck. President Joe Biden will meet with tech leaders today to discuss the risks and benefits of artificial intelligence. And in Paris, police have searched the headquarters of the 2024 Summer Olympics Committee as part of a probe into suspected corruption. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Huntington. Presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. Now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org. Mostly cloudy and around 70 today, 50s tonight, then mostly sunny and near 70 tomorrow. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. Half of us think the coming software robots will actually help us at work. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where you can find a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, despite recession fears, workers are still quitting for greener pastures and not just in the U.S. A new report finds the so-called Great Resignation is a global trend. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yeah, the report is from the accounting consulting firm PwC. It finds the main drivers of worker resignations to be burnout and lack of adequate pay. And this very much is a global survey covering 46 countries and territories. It finds that a growing number of workers are leaving if the company culture doesn't support them and because they're looking to keep up with inflation. More workers are saying that they're struggling to pay bills. And a quarter of those surveyed said they're planning to change jobs in the next year. That's up from a fifth a year ago. The study also finds that younger workers are more willing to leave than others, defined in the study, David, as Gen Z. That's people in their 20s. Right. And this study also asked about the potential impact of artificial intelligence on the labor market. What do people say? Right. And uh, well, one finding will shock absolutely no one. Younger workers are expecting to face a bigger impact from AI than older workers are expecting. A third of baby boomers, in fact, aren't worried about AI at all. But one surprising element is that half of the workers surveyed expect a positive impact from AI tools, more efficiency and productivity. And related to that, more than half of workers expect to need new skills to do their jobs in the next five years. And PwC is urging employers to step up and better support their workforces. Marketplace's Nova Safo. President Biden today is meeting in San Francisco with a group of tech leaders and advocates to talk about the promise of artificial intelligence and where guardrails need to be built. Today, I also talked to a political scientist who says there's a chance this could be a global effort that unites the world. In a surprise reshuffle, e-commerce giant Alibaba is replacing its boss as it borrows another strategy from rival Amazon. Its current chairman and chief executive, Daniel Zhang, will now lead the company's new cloud computing division and will be replaced by two of the company's founders. Nick Marsh is Asia business correspondent with our newsroom partners at the BBC. Alibaba made its fortune in online shopping, but years of sluggish sales have forced a rethink. Three months ago, it was announced that the business would be splitting up into six separately listed parts, including a new cloud division working on artificial intelligence. Mr. Zhang has a good relationship with the Chinese government and is seen as a safe pair of hands to launch a business that's expected to face heavy regulation in China. His replacements will come from within, including Zhou Tsai, who owns the NBA basketball team, the Brooklyn Nets, and he'll take over as chairman. Alibaba's stock fell 1.5% in Hong Kong today. Here, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down between 2 and 3 tenths of a percent. Chinese banks today once again cut some interest rates to bring more life into the country's limp post-COVID recovery. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. 
and by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at UiPath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. It's been a decade since the Black Lives Matter hashtag first appeared on Twitter, just over three years since the police murder of George Floyd. At the time, about two-thirds of Americans expressed support for the movement, according to Pew Research, but Pew's latest polling finds support has dropped to 51 percent. Marketplace's Kimberly Adams reports on how that decline is playing out in the thinking of corporate America. Companies these days are a lot quieter about social justice issues than they were in 2020, which is exactly what many expected. Public support, then backlash, then retreat. Adia Harvey-Wingfield is a professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. Many companies are looking at their initiatives and their investment in diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically when it comes to race, and saying this isn't quite an area where we want to focus as much anymore. And she says that can have direct consequences in the workplace. For Black workers in particular, in organizations where they are underrepresented, they often feel excluded and marginalized. People in leadership roles, they are more likely to stall out at middle management levels and less likely to climb to the top ranks of organizations. But there have been some shifts in the way people think about diversity in the workplace, says Juliana Horowitz at Pew Research. A majority of U.S. workers, 56 percent, say that focusing on increasing diversity, equity and inclusion at work is mainly a good thing. And while relatively few people say it's very important for them to work in a diverse workplace. Among those who've had experience with DEI measures at work, whether it's, you know, having organization or policies that ensure fairness in hiring, pay or promotion, or whether it's having trainings on DEI, majorities say that those have had a positive impact where they work. When it comes to publicly traded companies, there's been a big drop in how often they're talking about these issues with investors. Nick Mazing is the director of research at AlphaSense and checked the transcripts of earnings calls for more than 500 companies over the last few years. More than 190 of those companies mentioned the word racism in their calls after George Floyd's 2020 murder. Fast forward to this year, we've had only 11 transcripts that mentioned the word racism. What this means is that racism as a topic doesn't appear anymore in corporate conversations with Wall Street. But, says Mazing, What this doesn't mean is that the initiatives, such as employee resource groups or mentorship programs, racial pay equity audits and things like that, doesn't mean that they're not ongoing. If you look instead at proxy statements, which give a broader overview of companies' long-term plans, Mazing says many of the initiatives started during the country's racial reckoning are still alive and well. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. Thanks, Kimberly. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Mostly cloudy skies today. We'll have temperatures near 70. Tonight, those fall to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and back near 70. It'll be mostly sunny on Thursday, too, with temperatures in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. 
I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.